something better go ahead try welcome to back to another episode of spectacular radio i'm zach joiner executive producer of spidey dash the new spidey dash dude.com and the new spidey, spidey dude radio network uh, as always on spectacular radio i'm not the lead guy but i always like to do the introductions for him a man that needs little introduction is mr greg vishansky greg will you introduce uh, our uh, guests on this episode of course i will first dude you're my co-host so but thank you for the introduction all the same i would like to introduce again mr greg wiseman who is we're always grateful to speak with and i would like to welcome back to the show andrew robinson he wrote today's episode that we'll be discussing shortly gangland i think one of the best episodes of the series but and i'd like to thank you too for coming back on thanks for having us glad, very glad to be back <clears throat> Thanks for having me. Yeah, I would like to start on a somber note. I mean, we just, right now when we're recording this, June 12th, 2020, we found out earlier today that yesterday, June 11th, comic book legend who wrote, who had a brief run on Amazing Spider-Man, Denny O'Neill, passed away. Yeah, it wasn't just Amazing Spider-Man that he did. Uh, he had an initial stint with Marvel, uh, he was definitely an influence uh, there, but he was definitely an influence on the on the Batman world. Create uh, co-creator of Ra's al Ghul. Um, he worked on Superman and Shadow, Captain Marvel, Question. Um, he did the novelizations of Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. He was a co-creator of Madam Web and Hydro Man. Uh, Obadiah Stane, if for you Marvel. Uh, MCU fans and the Silver Centurion armor on Iron Man. He had a very lengthy run on Iron Man as well. Um, he is probably one of the most influential guys at DC. Um, this is a huge loss for the comic community. And I know uh, that Greg, did you, I'm talking about Greg Wiseman, did you work with him at DC? I did, yeah, for um, on staff for uh, probably about two years. And then uh, he was also my editor on Captain Adam, uh, even after I, when I went freelance after I left DC. Um, so yeah, I worked with Denny probably for a total of about four or five years in the late eighties into 1990. Um, and uh, of course I read his stuff long before that. 
um, you know, knew his work and big fan of his writing. Um, huge fan of his writing. Um, uh, really did some terrific groundbreaking stuff. I mean, this stuff that immediately comes to mind uh, is his Green Lantern, Green Arrow run with Neil Adams, mm-hmm. um, which for its time in particular uh, was just incredibly groundbreaking, um, dealing with social issues uh, in a way that comics largely just had not dealt with before. Very, really, really daring for its time, to be honest. Yeah, he wasn't afraid to he wasn't afraid to push buttons. Um, no. And he he was very socially conscious, and you just you can't help but you know look back at those what you just mentioned the the Green Lantern Green Arrow book and and not just see the profound influence it had on popular culture and comics in general. Uh, I don't even I don't even think we would have an Arrow TV show without without Denny's work, you know, before that, um, and and how that's all spawned everything else and on television. So um, yeah, I, it it was kind of a shock to me. I I had found out through Howard uh, Howard Mackey had posted a story and tribute on his Facebook group, and uh, had to go hunt it down and stuff like that. So. Yeah, very somber. Uh, not, not how we anticipated starting this episode, but we we didn't feel right not acknowledging that before we got started. He was a giant in the field. I mean, and a lot of people give Frank Miller credit for revitalizing Batman, and Frank Miller did some incredible works. So I don't mean to take away from what Frank did, but Denny O'Neill is the one who turned Batman back into a serious detective in the late 70s. Yeah. And... Took the character back to his roots after many years of, um, let's just say, reaction from that book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, seduction, seduction of the Innocent. Seduction, seduction of the Innocent. Yeah, that, that, that wonderful chestnut. Um, yeah, although to be honest, I think uh, there were also, I mean, there were all sorts of influences on Batman that sort of took him away from his core. Uh, I, Especially in the Innocent was pretty early on, um, and yeah. I think that in the '60s, you know, there was a huge influence from the Adam West uh, Batman television series, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and just comics in general at at that time. You know, it, it's easy now to look on that work, which was actually pretty great work, and go, "Oh my God, this is." Uh, characters are doing fighting silly aliens and stuff like that but that was you know to quote grandpa simpson that was the style at the time you know i mean it 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 and and it has a certain joy to it um that i i wouldn't knock to be honest but uh yeah denny definitely was one of the main guys who sort of brought batman back to his own and and without a doubt, the Batman that we see today evolves right out of um, Danny's tenure uh, on the book as a as a writer, and then later as an editor. Um, so it, you know, it, we definitely all owe a debt of gratitude to uh, Danny O'Neill. 
Definitely, and he, and like Zach mentioned earlier, he co-created one of the greatest villains in all of comics, definitely Batman's number two rogue, Ra's al Ghul. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, for, for a kid of the 90s show, um, which was my first introduction to Spider-Man, you know, Madam Web played such a huge role in that show, played by John, the late John Lee. Um, you know, he created he created that character, and, you know... I kind of wish we would have gotten more uh, a Madam Web and in, in, uh, in Spec, just because I would have loved to see Greg's take on her. But um, yeah, this is this was a uh, and, and well, the first Denny O'Neill story I think of him in, in Spider Man is is the Mud Monster story where Hydro Man and Sandman combine to be a big giant mud blob. Uh, I love that story, and I'll I'll tell you something. I'll. Uh, I don't usually drop hints about what we were going to do, but we were absolutely going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. awesome. Oh, nice. man. Well, anyway, Denny O'Neill, wherever you are, thank you for your contributions to pop culture and to these great and to modern-day mythology. We love them, and you will be missed. Now, Gangland. <laughs> okay i would like to start out by saying i've said this many times before but i'll say it again and many more times after this this is easily one of the best episodes of the series i mean everything is firing on all cylinders and it's the culmination of so much while still having three more episodes left to go the end of the criminology arc and i think we yeah. need to ask the first question why the opera <laughs> See, um, <laughs> oh, I know why, but were, I think our viewers might not know, so <laughs> our listeners. Do you remember, Andrew, where we started with that? I don't know that I remember how we got. I'm not sure I that I do. Broadcast, you know, it, it it felt like you know you're you're going to do a story that that is <clears throat> operatic in scale. Uh. Where where it felt like you know part of the, the season was coming to this big climactic element, um, and there's a little bit of a Godfather involved in that you know um, yeah oh yeah and I, the imagery that we were looking at I was gonna say there was definitely I was gonna say a definite Godfather influence to uh, to go on that route for sure yeah I. I had a suspicion about that, but I just like we're sitting there. I'm watching the episode right before we record, just to get refresh my brain. I watched it last week. Uh, it, I was like, and the first words out of my mouth were, "Greg was like, why the opera?" Bashansky, <laughs> yeah. and so that was like, I knew that was gonna. He was either gonna be Greg's first question or my first question. Um, yeah, I think it was very well utilized. I mean, it has, a, and it doesn't feel too bombastic in a way that can come off as pretentious. It actually adds to the fun of this, of the uh, entire conflict. Yeah, I, I think there's also. Sorry, Greg. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead, Andrew. Um, I think that there's an element too of of you know how often do you get to merge what is considered high culture with pop culture. One of the things that I love so much about the show is that New York City is a character in the show, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so 
you know, basing the opera house on it on I think it Lincoln, might have been the Metropolitan Opera, opera House. Lincoln Center. Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that being a a draw for people who go to New York and live in New York, it's like, all right, it's not an inorganic thing to have crime lords and you know, and mafia bosses like they want to go out for a night on the town, and it's you know, it, it's also Valentine's Day, so it's a big deal. <clears throat> so all of that uh, contributed, I think. I love that line about the Valentine's Day massacre before he catches himself. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we—that's uh, the one thing about this about this episode. Uh, there was literally parts where I laughed out loud watching it over again, even right before this episode. And I, and I remember the you know the episode, but it—it it, it certainly is one of the high watermarks of the series. And I, I feel like I say that every time we we do interviews with with Craig, but it. I think everybody's just perfect in how they they operate in this episode. Uh, you know, seeing L. L. Thompson Lincoln get his comeuppance. You know, Peter kind of having that a little bit of that Ditko era angry. You know, why did he make bail and throwing it? You know, right there with with uh, Captain Stacy. Uh, just the way Peter Parker's world just had you know, was just falling apart. Um, but Spider-Man's world was actually, you know, having some microcosm of success. He thinks. <laughs> so he thinks. I I love, uh, and I remember reading this, I, I did a re, uh, Sp- Amazing Spider-Man read-through with the Gang War story, which was uh, Jim Owsley, a.k.a. Christopher Priest, and started with Tom DeFalco. Um writing did did that story kind of pop in y'all's heads when y'all were kind of doing the planning was that was that deliberate or was it just happened to be circumstance i know you guys try to try to you know use the comics to influence the show but was that one that you guys kind of wrote down as yeah we want to do a gang storyline uh we definitely wanted to do a gang storyline we we like the idea of you know, the various schools of thought, you know, it's a family, no, it's a business, no, it's a science, you know, um, that was always really appealing to me. And then the idea of a power vacuum for Green Goblin to fill was likewise uh, incredibly appealing. Um, I just uh, liked that throughout the first season and most of the second season, we're building towards this, but, you know, that the rise of Ox, um, the sort of solidness of the tombstone operation um, up against uh, the return of Silvio Manfredi, Silvermane, um, and the sort of uh, head cannon we had for Silver Sable and Hammerhead all just played together and, and came to a head here, uh, Green Goblin's plans, all that stuff just sort of seemed to come together in this and, and fit nicely. Um, there's a lot that's fun, you know, even, and likewise, all the Valentine's Day relationships, you've got so many couples in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. You begin with this incredibly awkward triple date that then becomes a 
tough old date. Um, I don't even know what's <laughs> the word for it. Um, and uh, so it, 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 you wind up with that, and then that, and then you think, okay, so you've got twelve couples. Well, oh, we're also going to show you uh, Jay Jonah and Joan. And then in case that's not enough, we're going to show you Hobie and his girlfriend, whose name I used to know, but I can't remember it off the top Sally. of my head. Sally. Not Avril. No, Hobie. Oh, Hobie's. Oh, uh, oh yeah. I can't remember. Uh, Glory? No, Glory's oh, a no, Penny. No, that's Penny's oh, that's right. girlfriend. Um, I used to know it. I can't remember it off the top of my head. He ends up marrying her eventually. Uh, but, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And then on top of that, you've got the the hot chick and the nerdy guy from uh right uh the that other doc ock episode um, yeah so that you know we saw how they met and and now we're seeing them get engaged and again if we'd gone forward uh if we'd had a third season you would have seen uh some uh saint patrick's cathedral wedding action there for the two of them some kind of action sequence where they got married, and but there was danger in the cathedral kind of thing. Oh, that would have been fun. That's one of my... I love that little background subplot you had going on with them. And uh, let's see. Um, we also, I think we should talk... There was even a little hint. Sorry, there was even a little hint uh, between Aunt May and her doctor. Dr. Bromwell. Yeah. Yeah. That's that too. Uh, he's yeah. definitely crushing on... Doc Bromwell's definitely crushing on May. Uh, oh oh yeah he shows up at the house on valentine's day evening dressed to kill i mean who's he fooling (laughs) (laughs) i better put on my best suit for this house call uh by the way um uh hobie's girlfriend is mindy uh was uh, which became his wife mindy mcpherson so um, i looked that up for (laughs) y'all Just so that way, people that are listening aren't yelling into the into the. It's Mindy. It's Mindy. You guys forgot. And I, I might have done that a time or two. Yeah, I mean, I what I do like here is that Hammerhead is. I love watching him think he's completely in control, and yet he's not in any kind of control. I mean, you would think that the flowers with that note with a G on it as a signature would be would have at least raised a few alarm bells. I mean, did. It all does make me wonder, did Hammy and Tombstone forget that the Goblin exists? Uh, well, I mean, the Goblin didn't exist for quite some time. I mean, uh, you know, you it's not like we've been playing Goblin stuff since Harry was revealed as the Goblin. He went to Europe, he's been gone. The only time we've seen him since then, um, you know, which was, what, the second to last arc of the first season was, you know, uh, kind of uh, quick little mental vision of Peter's. You know, uh, he hasn't been hanging around or he's been gone. Yeah, I, mean, I, guess what, I guess what I'm wondering then is, to be more specific, did Tombstone and Hammerhead assume that Spidey did take him out at the steel mill? Well, you know. Uh, well, whether or not he did, he, he just hasn't been a factor in... in um, months. Now, whether they should have thought he was gone, that's another thing, I suppose, but he just has not been a factor uh, for quite some time, and and uh, so, no, he's not in the forefront of their yeah. heads, I guess. 
And I guess... Um, I, yeah. Oh, sorry. I just want to give kudos to the script. I love that the criminology arc literally ends with the goblin pleading guilty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's definitely uh, a bit of ir- like irony there. And... I, was... I just love the fact that there, were, like, there's a gang war, and in the comics, it was you know you had you had Kingsley in there. Uh, we didn't know it was Ryder Kingsley at the time, but uh, so you, you in a gang war, you you where you have all these all these power players. Um, in the comics, you have the the you know the power player of, of Mastermind being a goblin, and I, I I've always respected the fact that this show with with Norman. Uh, or the Goblin, excuse me. Uh, treated his one his his desires in the early in the Ditko era of being a criminal mastermind seriously, because it really hasn't been brought up all that much, especially post post his resurrection and the Clone Saga. Well, so I yeah, well we'll definitely discuss that more when we get to Gangland. So I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, not Gangland. Yeah. I mean to Final Curtain and. Or even maybe even well before that, but I do think what we should discuss is Peter completely dropped the ball in that restaurant. <laughs> oh, Peter, you fool! <laughs> uh, well, Andrew, I mean, I don't know if you want to jump in on that, or uh, I mean, I rewatched the episode last night, so it's fresh in my head. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I, I I think, and I, I defer to Greg on the relationship status, but, you know, there's always been that element of, you know, Peter's always had a thing for Gwen. We saw it in, in uh, you know, that, that dangerous moment, I believe it's episode 20, when they're hiding from Venom. Um, and, you know, he's sort of coming to realize, you know, terms of the idea that he really has very serious feelings for her. Um, and teenage boys do stupid things. Yes, right? we did. We all they don't, did. They don't. They don't think things through all the way. And that you know that moment of unfortunate honesty, I guess you could call it. Uh, you know, that that bites him in the ass. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that, that we're one thing I think we show throughout is um, it's exaggerated with Peter. But it's not just teenage boys, it's kind of guys. You know what I mean? You can certainly Fair. look at how Flash is behaving, how Mark Allen is behaving, how Jonah's behaving, how Hammerhead behaves with Silver Sable. <laughs> um, it, you know, it, it guys are stupid. Um, I think there's yeah, a big element of that. Uh, throughout, you know, uh, but yeah, Peter in particular. Um, and, you know, I, I love the scene that Andrew wrote at the end where Mark sort of hands Peter his head when Peter shows up at the hotel late, um, goes up to Liz and uh, it goes up to the Allen's suite where they live. And uh, Mark just tears him a new one, which I just love. Um, right. And, you know, Mark is Mark is doing some pretty stupid shit himself, but <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very true. But not emotionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, you know, 
I it was so random that he became the the in the comics the the half brother of Liz, uh-huh. and it felt that way at least. And the way y'all have that you guys just integrated him into the universe as you know as Liz's brother, uh, it. I, I, well, I, I say this I often. Think, go ahead, go ahead, Greg. I was just going to say that we, it, it's easier for us. We have the 2020 that comes with hindsight, right? So it's like, oh, okay, so this guy's going to turn out to be Liz's brother. Well, as opposed to making it an afterthought and making it feel artificial, well, let's just make him her brother. You know, <laughs> it doesn't have to be. You know, I mean, in other words, if that's where it's going to go, then let's just make it organic from the from the from moment one, in essence, from the get go. But you know, it makes us seem brilliant, but it's it's not. I mean, it just isn't. What it is is the straightforward advantage we have of of operating um, from the lofty position of hindsight. You know that. If, if I have no doubt that if the people who created um, the character that Mark becomes, I'm not going to spoil anything if your viewers are following along one by one episode at a time, you right. know, if they had thought of this idea from the beginning, they would have done it from the beginning too. But one of the fun things, but also the dangers of working in these sort of shared sandboxes that are the DC universe or the Marvel universe is that you've got multiple writers, multiple artists, multiple editors um, working on a book over years and years and years and years and years. Plus the character appearing in other books that you can't control. And so you wind up with some good ideas that weren't necessarily introduced in such a great way. I mean, I think an even better example is for us at least was what we were able to do with Eddie um, yeah. Again, with the benefit of hindsight, if you knew who Venom was going to be and his importance from day one, you would have done a better job at integrating Peter and Eddie in the first place. Um, but they didn't know. So they are cobbling it together as they go once they figure things out. Well, we have the advantage, the frankly unfair advantage, though I'm not knocking it. I'm saying, thank God. Um, of of being able to see where something goes over a long period of time and being able to take advantage of that so that we can lay pipe and build it organically from the get-go as opposed to having to play catch-up after the fact. At least, you know, God knows that um, whether it's Spidey or Young Justice or whatever, someone could write a story that I think is terrific and I'll be like, yeah, we did not plan for that. Um, and then you either have to decide, well, are we going to find a way to wedge that in, even though we didn't, it, you know, it won't be quite as organic as other things we've done? Or do we just have to say, yeah, great story. There's no way for us to use it because it's just not, you know, we didn't know it was coming. Right. And right. there are always more comics with Spidey, Spider-Man or with, the DC universe or whatever, you know, but when it comes to where we were on spectacular and some of these characters 
um, we had the, this huge benefit of sometimes 40 years worth of hindsight. And that made it much, much easier. I'd also like to say the first time I watched this episode, I got a little bit nervous because Doc Ock is present, there's debris flying around, and George Stacy shows up. For a moment, I kind of wondered if he was going to take a fatal hit. <laughs> well, anytime you have Otto and George Stacy in, 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 in any type of vicinity, you, you start getting you know flashbacks to to the comics. But was I there... get that. <laughs> was that's one of those things about keeping you know eleven to three characters alive in a single episode. Andrew, do you, I counted. This episode has 21 actors in it. 21 <laughs> actors. I, I cannot imagine what... I mean, and this has become like routine that we have 18 actors or 17 actors or 19 actors or 21 actors in an episode. Mm. I'm like, what kind of budget did we have on this show? <laughs> I thought it was ridiculous. Ridiculous. I mean, uh, but again, it's like keeping all those voices alive. Andrew, when you did Taijudo, which had a huge cast, what would you say your average per episode actor count was? <sighs> um, I don't think it ever got above ten. So on, I don't think it ever got above well, ten. We use we we had a day, lot of actors. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so we had part of the calculus that we did with Taijudo was trying to get as many actors who could do as many voices as possible. Um, so right. there were there were times when you'd have when you know I, I literally one time wrote a scene for the you know at, that had Gray Delisle having a three way conversation with her you know with three different characters that she was voicing. Uh, because she was that versatile. And so we, for the most part, we were trying to get as many incredibly talented but versatile actors uh, as we could because our budget for that was actually fairly uh, limited. Right. So I, same thing, we always try to get actors who can do two or three and sometimes because they're really versatile or sometimes we like going, okay, well, um, someone can play this character and this character's father, and you just sort of, it, it just becomes an acting thing, but it's okay if their voice is similar because, you know, they're related. Um, right. Or you get someone, and so we do that, but one problem that you do run into sometimes is, okay, but this episode I need these particular characters, and these particular characters don't happen to double, which is clearly what happened here. You've got 21 actors, and only two of them, James Arnold Taylor and Steve Bloom, are doubling. At right. All. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so you've got 23 characters speaking and 21 actors. And, and I guess that sometimes it just works out that way. We have that problem on Young Justice all the time. But, I, you know, we struggle to to keep it down to a dozen on YJ. And it's a huge struggle. But this notion of sure. routinely going over 16, 17, over 20 actors, just 
blows me away. And I, I, I don't remember how we were able to do it. it. It just is like a mystery to me. And I clearly participated in it. I know I worked on Spectacular <laughs> Spider-Man. I, I remember working on Spectacular Spider-Man, but I have no memory of how we were able to pull this off with this many actors. Hey, I'm an eyewitness to you working on that show. Um, <laughs> although I do have to have to say, um, Andrew brings up Great Delilah having a three-way conversation with herself. Different show, but kudos to Zara Fazal in Young Justice Season 3 for making out with herself in one episode. Yeah. That was fun. <laughs> what was that like in the booth, um, before we get back on topic? Uh, uh, you know, it's a lot of kissing your own hand kind of thing and pretending their lips. Um, and doing it twice. Um, <laughs> All right. The more you know. The more you know. We also. I yeah. think we should talk. I love Flash's uh, entire arc throughout throughout the show, but throughout this episode in particular. I mean, at first it almost seems a little bit sitcommy. The whole "kick me if I say something dumb" thing. Although Peter's li- ship uh-huh. sailed line is brilliant. I love that line. And then. When and then when he turns on a dime, when he gets when his confidence is reassured by Shashan, and he gets really romantic when he says when he says nothing would give him more joy than to dance with her. I love that. Like where's this? Yeah, nice that moment. Moment. I also really love the moment when Kenny kicks him for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pete was doing it. It looked Pete like was fun. Doing it. it looked yeah. like fun. <laughs> that that's how you know you have good friends. Those are those are the type of friends you want, just to kick you for no reason, just because it seems like it's a good idea at the time. <laughs> those are the ones you usually get in trouble with. Again, guys do dumb things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and guy, males are the type that they'll literally fight their best friend, and then they'll be, you know they'll they they'll be mortal enemies, and then they have a fist fight, and then they're best friends for life. So you know that's that's just how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, also I think we need to discuss it. What a great bookend to the end of to the end of the Invisible Hand. I love this the second confrontation between Spidey and Tombstone, and Spidey defeats him, and that and it is beautiful to watch with that opera music going on no sound effects nothing just the music and the action yep i i, I also was... i also loved andrew's line of uh, I, god i hope the fat lady's not singing and then you cut right to the fat lady you know belting out her tune that was that was i i know that's a trope but it it was still it still made me chuckle so kudos to you Andrew. much appreciated i i do want to uh, say regarding the opera um, we, I remember researching operas for this and going through about five or six operas and bringing them to Greg to talk about themes. And the one that we wound up going with was, I believe, Rigoletto. Yep. I've got uh, it. Yeah. Giuseppe Verdi. And Verdi. And, and the themes of that, of betrayal and the, you know, the clown and the general and the, you know, the daughter, all of these things... I was trying to come, we were trying to come as close to enacting that theme through the episode, you know, so that the music, if anybody was aware of what that was, would provide an ironic counterpoint to what we were seeing. And we've brought in dynamic music partners, Lolita and Chris and um, Michael, really early on in the process, um, which may surprise some people because, you know, it was a lot of this 
all that opera stuff obviously wasn't their score. Um, but we worked really closely with them from really early on to integrate all that into um, the score. And they did a lot of the choosing of which tracks we would use where. Um, because this was uh, an opera that Sony had the rights to use. You know, the opera, of course, itself is public domain, but the recording isn't. Um, no. But Sony had this recording in their library, and we were able to use it. But it's a long opera, and so, you know, choices had to be made. Well, Jameson and, certainly thought it was long. <laughs> uh, the, 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 um, I, I felt Jameson, like really hard when he was in the opera and falling asleep. Uh, I was just like, uh, I remember that. Um, there, There's some really interesting stuff. I mean, you mentioned the fact that there's no sound effects at one point, and that was my idea that once we got into that fight that we would switch from um, full sound and grunts and sound effects and just let the music carry it. But I want to give credit to Michael Vogel because he said we need a transition and so you have this moment where the pipe uh, that Tombstone is carrying hits another pipe, and that clang is the last sound effect you hear. And then we just go with the music with nothing else, and it wound up that transition moment was so important, and that was Michael Vogel's idea uh, in our mix session. Um, and But I just love how effective it is, and then how we were able to go with just music and no other sound and still have it play as exciting as that ending does is, is uh, really great. And another thing I want to point out that's really unusual about this episode is that um, except for the teaser, all, almost all the music in the episode is what you call source music. It's not scoring in the traditional sense where in theory, the characters aren't hearing the music, right? Music is for the audience and it um, and, you know, action shows in particular are incredibly dependent on music um, to help the stuff play. Um, and. But all the music was sourced when you get to the hotel, it's whatever's playing in the lobby when you're in. Uh, Jazzy Gianni's, which was obviously named for uh, John Romita senior. Um, the restaurant where all the kids are eating dinner. Um, there's a jazz band playing and that's all source music. In other words, it's as opposed to normal scoring where the audience is hearing the music and we all have the suspension of disbelief because the characters aren't hearing the music. This was an episode where the characters could hear the music all the time. You could hear the um, opera, you could hear the jazz band, you could hear the, Muzak playing in the lobby, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and we tried to strip out any other music. Um, still a lot of work for uh, dynamic music partners, but very different from a, a typical uh, episode of Spectacular Spider-Man or, frankly, a typical episode of any show. Um, it all played very differently and really, you know, got to hand it to the, the three of them because they did incredible work um, pulling all that together. And, and as an addendum, I was I was very grateful to, to meet them on that. They later became 
the uh, the people who did the score and the and the soundtrack and all, all that stuff for the show that I later did Kaijudo. They are incredible. I mean, the work they've done. I they do Young Justice also, right? Yeah, yeah. Their work has been great. I've seen their mm-hmm. names on in the credits of so many animated series, and I'm a big fan of their of their work. And they've earned all the accolades they've gotten, and I look forward to hearing more from them as uh, in future shows. And I do need need mm-hmm. to mention one thing. When I to- I told someone that we were going to be discussing Gangland today, and they asked me, "Is that Michael Kidd a young Michael Morbius?" <laughs> uh, no, that. Michael, you mean the, the the student who's at the show? Yes. At the opera? No, he was a contest winner. Um, or middle school, which is not written on the ORR middle school, which is written on the school bus. Um, and the character of Michael was based on a – we held a contest back then. I don't remember um, what the parameters of the contest were. Uh, at all, no memory of that. But Michael won, and so he got to be in an episode of Spectacular Spider-Man um, with the name of his school on it. And uh, I even have a, but his name gets mentioned, not his last name, but that Michael and his visual was, you know, Sean Galloway's version that that he designed off of a picture of an actual kid who won a contest be in Spectacular Spider-Man. Oh, that is awesome. Michael, if by any chance you're listening, feel free to write in sometime. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you're still a fan. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't remember where or Middle School is. I don't know where it is, what city or, or what. It wasn't necessarily New York, but uh, um, it was his school, his first name, and the look of the character was based on a photo that we were sent of him. Um and then, uh, and so we had to find an episode to write him into, and we wanted it to be a fun thing, not just, oh, there's a kid on the street that we run by really quick. We wanted him to have some in, actual involvement. So, you know, Jonah and Spidey combined to save his life, and then he's watching all this action. And I love, he's got a line of dialogue um, where he says, uh, something like best field trip ever or something. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, which I'm pretty sure was Bray um, doing his voice, but uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. Um, and circling back to Tombstone, he's really in a no-win situation here, it seems. There's one point where Ock recognizes that Spidey is a big threat, even proposes they all just come together, kill him, and they can just divide the city up equally, but Tombstone can't shed his public image and then ends up losing it anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, it's Fun to put your characters through shit. <laughs> well, I, I, I love the part where he grabs Otto. He's like, "Bill Dubs and Lincoln can't uh, can't be seen associating with known mobsters and supervillains," and it still doesn't help him either way. Um, I, I know, Greg, that you you haven't probably played the Spider-Man PS4 game, uh, but that this this story arc gets kind of homaged in that game 
it's one of my favorite aspects of the game. And so, uh, really? yeah, they, they have a whole gang storyline. Um, and it's produced by Sony. Uh, they bought Insomnia, uh, which produces the game. And so they have, there's actually a part of the DLC is Silver Sable versus Hammerhead. So, uh, the influence of Spec Spidey, I think, is still being felt even to this day. So they're about to, uh, later on this year, they'll be releasing a sequel or a, a, an add-on to the game, but uh, for the new system that's coming out later this year. But yeah, that's, uh, so as I'm watching this, I'm like, oh yeah, that's where they, that's where they got that for the game was, was actually from Spectacular. Oh, and I've got to ask because we haven't talked about him yet. Silvermane finally makes his big debut. So, how, what was it like adapting him? I mean, you gave him the powered armor, which I thought was a cool homage to the robot body he had. Hey, uh, guys, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. Uh, before before you answer, I've I've got a meeting at two o'clock. I've got to jump out. Um, thank you so much for having me in, you guys. Andrew, thank wonderful you. Wonderful so, to, to talk to you. Andrew, thank you. So Andrew, much. thank you. The episode is incredible. The script is incredible. Well, bless your heart. I I you know. I wouldn't have been able to do it if not for Greg, and uh, I will be forever grateful for that. Um, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, yes. Andrew. Take care Absolutely. of yourself. Right. And we'll, Thank you, sir. And we'll keep an eye, an eye out for what you're working on. Thank you. Stay safe, oh, stay God. healthy. You too. All you right. Too. Bye. All right, Greg, we were about to, if you still have any time left, we were about to discuss Silvermane. Yeah, I mean, it It was fun. You know, again, you uh, first off, you get Miguel Ferrer. Can't beat that. I mean, uh, and uh, I, I like the relationship between father and daughter in this. Um, and, uh, but I just, you know, what we managed to do was, again, it was all about what's your point of view on running the city and, and, and uh, Ock, you know, is about it's a scientific endeavor. It's all about calculation. And and Tombstone uh, is like it's a business. You know, it's all about uh, you know production. And and uh, and for Silvio, no, this is a, it's a family. Um, and you know his attitude about Hammerhead again has to do with where we saw Hammerhead's origins and, and how they were involved with uh, Sable and Silvio and before uh, Hammerhead hooked up with uh, uh, Lincoln um, it uh, it all you know just came together and was really nice and then you know the armor was fun it was just cool very cartoony, I suppose, but for our show, it seemed to work really well. Um, you know, he's wearing special armor. He presses a button, and it all extends and uh, covers him. And then, of course, Spidey defeats him not out of strength or superpowers so much as figuring out the science of the thing and how to disable it. Yeah. Um, I mean, and he beats Ock. Like with precision, uh, but with when it comes to L. Thompson Lincoln, there's nothing. He just has to muscle through that. Um, 
And so again, one of the things that I like is he uses three different methods to beat these three different villains. And, um, and I just, you know, that to me, again, Andrew left, so his head won't swell, but uh, he did a really great job. Oh, so great props to our director, storyboard artist, who again choreographed this incredible battle between four different villains. And that's on top a little bit of vulture, not a lot, a little bit of vulture, you know, some hammerhead, some silver sable. Um, there's some great moments in there. I love the moment when, you know, Sable pulls her gun and she's holding it on hamster. I love her calling her and he's walking out on her and she could shoot. She could shoot right there and end it. She just can't bring herself to do it. Yeah. And so he walks out and then again, you've got the moment at the end where, uh, tombstones being, taken off to jail and he turns hammerhead who's feeling pretty good about things right up until that moment. You know, I think he felt like Tombstone's lack of respect and lack of trust after a long and profitable relationship between the two of them pushed him to this point. He's not aware of how he's being manipulated really. Um, and he just feels like, Tombstone puts him to this point, but it seems to have worked out pretty well until that moment where Tombstone says, expect your severance, you know, any day now or something like that. And suddenly you see this look on Hammerhead's face where he's like, oh, what did I do? You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 When he, when he, when he scurries away, kind of like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> does he get uh, to keep his yeah. chauffeur does he get to keep his chauffeur after this yeah the chauffeur's loyal to him clearly okay <laughs> okay okay good good to know the chauffeur named Greg no 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 no. that was Norman Osborne's chauffeur oh that's right that's right yeah the hammerhead chauffeur's a woman and way sexier than I am well you're sexy in your own way there chance <laughs> And uh, poor Hammerhead, he's had a lot of bad luck. I mean, didn't he, uh, something bad happened to him when he got a little bit handsy with uh, t- so- with Sable 12 years ago? Was she underage? Uh, question. Um, they were both younger. We never really said exactly how old either of them are. But he was working. I mean, again, this is kind of headcanon. But in our minds, he was, you know, working for Silvio Manfredi and uh, started a relationship with Manfredi's daughter, secret relationship, consensual, but secret. And I don't know whether she was underage. If she was, it wasn't by much. Um, but I, uh, but obviously either way, Manfredi was not happy about it. Um, one of his guys um, being with his daughter and so they, uh, you know, Silvio took uh, the guy who became Hammerhead out and um, put enough of a beating on him that Hammerhead winds up with a flat steel skull, you know, um, because his original skull, that's how 
it got smashed was uh, a punishment for Hanky Panky with the boss's daughter. Yeah, I, I love how there's there's a there's nothing is unintentional in this universe. It's all even if it's in a headcanon, there's always there's always a method to that. Yeah, and again, that goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, if you've got there, there's an attempt that we made, a conscious attempt, again with the benefit of hindsight, saying, okay, where will we go with these characters eventually? Now, unfortunately, we only got two seasons. But we had, a, you know, the original plan was five seasons and then movies. And so, you know, where are we going with these characters? Uh, so that would be part of it. Um, and the other part was, can we make this universe a little more cohesive? So it doesn't seem like creating supervillains is something anyone can do or that, you know, wow, a lot of people are having random accidents that are turning them into um, supervillains. So we plan for things in advance, A, that we know we're going to come to. That's the hindsight thing. But the other thing is cohesion. So, um, you know, creating a relationship between Silvermane and Silver Sable based solely on the fact that they both have uh, white or platinum blonde hair and uh, have the word silver in their name may seem somewhat goofy even. But the fact is, is that if you're coming to the Spider-Man universe clean and fresh, that makes sense. And it doesn't stop us. You know, think about where Silver Sable goes out of this episode. We've seen her before, seen her in action, seen her in her Silver Sable costume. She's not wearing it in this episode. This episode, she's in a in fancy dress, right? Um, but where does she go from here when her father, who's clearly broken parole, when her father's sent back, where does she go from here with her skills? She can't go to work for Tombstone. She sure as hell not going to go to work for Doc Ock or Gobby. Um, what's she going to do with those skills that she's learned? And that takes us closer to where Silver Sable, the Silver Sable of the comics, but it gives her a backstory and a history. Um, and so we tried to create with that kind of intention, that kind of long-term planning, but also that kind of cohesion to the universe. So things don't just seem like they're randomly happening left and right. Electro doesn't happen to get electrocuted and wind up being the villain. <laughs> um, Sandman and Rhino don't just happen to happen. This is all a cohesive part of a universe that's being built character by character um, as we went. And there was a lot of forethought put to everything from, you know, the guy who would eventually be Hydro Man to uh, the guy who would eventually be Hobgoblin. So. Um, Maury Bench and Kingsley. All that. Well, I'm not saying, but all that. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> My bad. My bad. Spoilers. Um, would have come into play had we been able to do our original five plus year plan. Right. Yeah. Also, you mentioned the uh, the 21 voice actors earlier. What also impressed me was we've seen some of these characters in fancy dress before, but Sable isn't wearing the same fancy dress she wore in uh, 
accomplices and MJ and some of the others aren't wearing this and Liz aren't wearing the same fancy dress that they wore in uh, Catalyst. So, I mean, I, I feel like most shows would just reuse the same fancy dress designs, not you guys. <laughs> no, no. And, and trust me, there's a lot of shows that they, you know, they don't put that type of detail into it. Not, and it may be just budget, like you've said before, budgetary reasons, but it's certainly uh, a welcomed uh, thing that, that Sean brought to the show. Well, and I also really want to give credit to Jennifer Coyle because um, Sean is fantastic, but um, as the, um, as one of our directors, uh, Jennifer was uh, also the one who's sort of going, yeah, the girls wouldn't dress like this for this occasion, you know, and we valued that input and she helped design a lot of the fashions um, that uh, we used on the show for uh, the female characters. Cause you had got a bunch of doofy guys. who don't know from Adam what a, what a high school girl would be wearing. A Valentine's <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I do want to give credit to Jennifer for um, helping us out on those. You know, we, you have this moment where in, at the beginning of the episode where um, Gwen comes out and, um, and it's supposed to be kind of a revelation. I mean, she was always cute. She's still cute. But, wow, she's supposed to be kind of a knockout all of a sudden out of nowhere. And I think that's a really fun moment uh, that you've got to give credit to a lot of uh, different people for, including Sean, obviously, but right. also Jennifer Coyle and, and others on the show. I love Peter's line when he sees Gwen the first time. You look like an angel, Peter. Yeah, did Harry Peter. pick up on that? Because I know that doesn't really become a problem until final curtain, but Liz and Mark definitely picked up on that from across the room. Uh, I, the way uh, I, Pete... I, I think, yeah, I think, I think Harry, everybody picked up on it. Yeah. Yeah, the way Harry's like, like immediately you know, run, not literally, but like almost immediately goes over to her and be like, ah, let's go. <laughs> Peter, you... You know, a, a closed mouth does not uh, eat a foot, so you know, sometimes it's hard to learn that lesson as a dude. Yeah. <laughs> I've learned that the hard way. So have I. <laughs> Hell, Greg Wiseman has had to help me learn that a few times, as I'm sure he remembers. <laughs> I, I have no comment on that whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But no, the, uh, but no, the Gwen's developments in this episode from nerdy wallflower to I, I think he used to refer to, to her as the cool blonde in contrast to MJ's hot redhead is was really well done and I and I love that MJ helped her make that journey yeah it's always assumed that Mary Jane and, and Gwen are friends in the comics but like you read the Dicko or the the Romita Stan Lee era, it's kind of they're they're awful catty with each other. <laughs> they're more frenemies than friends. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably true, but um, I I think we wanted to show, and not just with Gwen and um, and uh, MJ, but also with Liz and Sally, 
that, you know, there could be real friendships there and not just fall into the sort of catty trope. So that, I, I mean, Sally's got this kind of, there's this amazing moment for me in the show where Liz is hurting, even at the beginning of this date because of the way Peter reacted to seeing Gwen. Now, part of this comes out of the fact that Liz is aware that Peter's into Gwen and she's been aware of it pretty much almost from moment one and been in some amount of denial about it up to this point. Um, and she's, but she's clearly hurting. And so Flash has arranged this, what a coincidence moment because he needs Peter's help, right? Can't trust Rand or Kong to make sure he doesn't say something stupid because they love it when Flash says something stupid, right? right. Um, so he needs Peter's help for that. So he is, you know, Peter's on a triple date with Harry and um, Mark and, and MJ and Gwen and Liz, right? Flash is on a triple date with Kong and Rand and Sally Glory and um, Shashan. So he arranges for them to accidentally go to the same place as Peter and then forces everybody to sit together, which was also a really <laughs> funny moment for me in the script. But, um, but uh, the thing that's interesting is that it's not working until Liz says to Sally, you know, please join it. And she says it in a way that says, I, I need my friend with me. Yeah. And... Sally, for all her, you know, normal bitchiness, she's a good friend to Liz and right. cares about Liz. And so when Liz makes that plea, as little as Sally wants to sit with Harry Osborne and Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy, you know, let alone MJ, who kind of semi-hit on Rand back at the prom. Um, <laughs> it's all formal. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, she says okay and sits down because her friend needs her. Yeah, I, and that is, that is a very good point. I like I, I like that scene just because of the awkwardness. But like Liz, for once in her life, is out of her element because of who she's yeah. surrounded by. And so she gets her friend group in there and you know it doesn't exactly protect her but she's got someone she knows is on her side there's no way she thinks MJ um, is particularly on her side and she views Gwen as a rival right so right. she needs Liz and Liz as little as Liz wants to be there she uh, says okay and, and slides into the booth yeah, we talked about these little moments last time about humanizing Sally because it would have been so easy to turn her into a caricature, and I'm so grateful that she wasn't. Yeah, I mean, again, Sally is a really fun and I think really complex character, uh, but also really funny. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a great mix to the to the cast to have her there and and there's so much going on in this episode with Mark's gambling problem and 
everything else going on. There, I, I, there are little touches that I love, like uh, Jonah calling Joan Picklefoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then later in the episode, Spidey calls Jonah Picklefoot, which is, of course, one of his derogatory nicknames for uh, Jonah that he's used multiple times before. But somehow or other, Jonah clearly took it and turned it into this diminutive for his wife, and somehow his wife doesn't know that it's this insult. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I just, like, I just appreciate that, that, that for once we actually get the first wife instead of Marla. Yeah, she's mad at Jonah, but she's not mad at him for that. She doesn't react to him calling her pickle puss. That's not what pisses her off. <laughs> So she, she thinks it's a wonderful little unique term of endearment he's come up with. Um, and I find that just hilarious. I do, too. Um, I guess in Peter's own roundabout way, it could, it could be a, a term of endearment as Spider-Man. Hey, he likes Jonah, despite Jonah's Jonah-ness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you want to hear more about uh, the Greg is talking about uh, about Sally... Uh, check out episode forty-three of this very show. If this is your first show, so mm-hmm. I feel like I just did. I feel like I was just the uh, little caption box on the corner on a, on a in a comic. Nice. Yeah, and Greg, I do want to thank you for giving us so much time. I know you're very busy lately with Young Justice. So before we wrap up, Zach, do you have any other questions before we? No, uh, I, I I look forward to hearing what uh, what Greg's been working on. I I. I I know he's doing season four of Young Justice. That's pretty much all I'm doing. <laughs> That's all I'm doing is season four of Young Justice. It keeps me plenty busy. So uh, nothing else to plug. Up all my no, time. no other books to plug. I know you were you had your book series a, uh, a while back, but is that on the back burner? Uh, I have six novels I could plug. None of them are new. Um, you know, there's my own Reign of the Ghost series, and there are two books in that series: Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam. I've got uh, two uh, books in my uh, World of Warcraft series, um, which is uh, Traveler and Traveler the Spiral Path, and then two books in my Magic the Gathering series, which are uh, War of the Sparks Ravnica and War of the Spark Forsaken. And then Rain the Ghost also has the audio book, you can get on Amazon. Uh, you get all the stuff on Amazon or order them at any bookstore, uh, assuming bookstores are able to open it at some point. Um, it just depends on your state. <laughs> Truth be told, it depends on where you're living. Right. Yeah. So, In these weird uh, times we're in. But yeah, I mean, I uh, obviously uh, love to see sell more books, but yeah, I don't have anything new out. Uh, and I'm not currently working on a novel. I'm, I'm pretty, uh, busy just working on season four. Uh, I do have a question, Greg, has all this, uh, craziness cha- changing y'all's ways of, of producing the shows? Are y'all having to do more remote stuff or work from home or, uh, the whole crew is working from home on YJ. Uh, this is um, turned out largely not to be a problem. Uh, it slows things down. Meetings um, 
inevitably have one technical problem or another. Someone's internet falls out or whatever. You know, I'm doing meetings on Teams, on Zoom, on Skype, on FaceTime, you name it, we're doing it. Um, Evercast, Source Connect, it feels like 80 different ways to do the exact same thing, but we're using (laughs) all of them. Um, We're not in post-production. There are certain things in post-production I literally don't know how we could do uh, remotely. Um, We're not in post yet, so we'll sort of cross that bridge when we come to it. Most of it, though, is not a problem. Um, Recording voices has been a bit of a challenge. Um, Most of our actors, though not all, but most of our actors um, are figuring out, either have the means of recording from home or figuring out how to do it. There are a handful who just feel like that's, they don't do that, that that kind of technology is not up their alley and they can't do it. And so um, we've had actors come into studio one at a time. Um, and again, we're recording everybody one at a time, whether from their home or from a studio. Which, um, which I know is not how you prefer which to is, work. Yeah, it's not, and it's not how they prefer to work for the most part, and it's not, uh, I think, ideal. I don't think in the final product anyone's going to be able to notice the difference. They're not going to be able to sort of say, ah, here's where they switched over from cast recordings to coronavirus (laughs) work-at-home recordings. I don't think anyone's going to be able to tell in the final product, Right. Um, but it's certainly not as much fun. I mean, I'll say that, you know, you don't get the same camaraderie. Um, There are always technical challenges that we don't have when we're in studio. Um, And so it all, and again, you're recording one person at a time. Think about that. As opposed to recording, you know, six or seven actors at a time, it's recording one at a time. It's going to take, yeah, well, we're not, don't have a budget for that, but uh, <laughs> but the point is, is that we just uh, it takes way longer. I mean, just way longer um, to do it that way. Uh, but it's all doable. It's not a problem. It just is very time consuming and not as fun for us. But it won't affect the final product at all. Again, there's there's stuff in post production that I don't know how we could do from home. Um, but we're not there yet. So we'll, like I said, either by the time we are in post, hopefully things will, uh, opened up a little more and we can go back at least for sound mix for online to businesses as it was. And if not, we'll just have to find a technical workaround that we haven't found yet, but we are not there to look for it even yet. So we'll just have to see. Um, but, uh, in general, it's all been um, honestly uh, easy. I know this is these are very trying times um, on all sorts of levels for so many people, but I have uh, I really can't complain um, because it has not been um, a huge or really any kind of um, sacrifice for me. Uh, certainly not professionally at all so uh it it uh, i've been very very lucky in all this um and 
uh, and I'm very appreciative of, of, of that ability and Warner brothers has been great. Um, and, uh, I'll leave it at that. Well, thank you. Thank you again for your time. I know obviously with, with having to produce another show during all of this, um, clearly it's, it's a, it's a different world and, we just we're so appreciative that you've been able to be on uh, on all these shows with us and and talk with us about this fantastic show. Um, Greg, I, do you got anything else? I, I thought we'd just kind of wrap up from there. Um, I'll, I'll just say one more thing. I mean, I'm I'm also grateful to you, Greg, for continuing to come on. I mean, we just finished the pen ultimate arc. We've only got three more episodes to go, and I'm not gonna lie, when we first started. I didn't honestly think we would make it this far, but I see the fi- I see a finish line in sight, and as I've been saying, that's a little defeatist of you there, Bashansky. <laughs> oh jeez! Oh yeah, twenty six episodes. We're never gonna make that. Uh, <laughs> you done did it now, there, Bashansky. You done did it now. Listen to our podcast and competition if you want further details. <laughs> but no, we're. As I keep saying on social media, when people have asked me about the status of the show, I've been saying final curtain or bust. So, Greg, I would like to once again thank you for joining us. And So, uh, if you want to uh, be able to follow us on various social medias, we have we just have launched a new Instagram, uh, Spidey Dude Networks, at Spidey Dude Networks. Of course, we have our Facebook page, Spidey Dude Radio Network, at Spidey Dude Radio Network. Radio Network. Twitter is uh, at S Dude Podcasts. Uh, we'll be uh, definitely hyping this up. If you follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you can definitely find us on all three of those platforms. Of course, you can always find us over at spy-dude.com. Uh, we'll be uh, putting a new facelift pretty soon, so uh, keep keep an eye out on that. And, of course, you can also always leave us a voicemail at 818-925-6631. That's 818 818- Nine two five six six three one. That's the voicemail line, and uh, you can leave us an email at uh, spectacularradio at gmail dot com. Uh, we definitely want to get voicemails simply because uh, as we get to towards the final curtain, we'll definitely be playing a lot of those in the fan panels. So be sure to leave your voicemails. Uh, that's eight one eight nine two five six six three one. Just remember, keep it under three minutes, and of course, mention that you where where your name and where you're from, and of course. Uh, what show you are calling about because it is the voicemail line for the entire Spidey Dude radio network. So with that, we'll see you next time here on Spectacular Radio where we cover another fan panel. So we'll see you next time here on the Spidey Dude radio network where we cover the episode fan panel episode of Gangland. To the Valentine's Day Massacre mm, Summit.